This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Despite having presented a podcast with Michael Clark about 15 months ago, we continue to get inquiries about the whereabouts of the former champion jockey. Those inquiries have been frequent enough to warrant a replay of that interview. There has been one dramatic change to Michael's life since the podcast was posted last year. Just three months ago, he lost Janelle, his partner of 25 years who passed away after a three-year struggle with ill health. Michael is coping as well as can be expected and has immersed himself in the burgeoning career of their son, Michael Poy, who looks set to win his second Victorian Apprentices Premiership. There are several mentions of Janelle during this interview. Michael was happy to leave the podcast exactly as it was in March of 2019. Firstly, we clear a commitment and then we revisit a trip down memory lane with Michael Clark. The Clarence River Jockey Club proudly presents its historic July double, the Ramorny Handicap on Wednesday, July the 8th, and the Grafton Cup on Thursday, July 9th, on one of Australia's best country racecourses. The 1,200-metre listed Ramorny, first run in 1910, will carry a purse of $200,000, and the same prize money will be available, 2,350-metre Grafton Cup, which also had its beginnings in 1910. Traditionally, both races attract metropolitan standard fields. In an ordinary year, the two-day Grafton Festival would attract people from all over the nation. In its heyday, the Grafton Cup Carnival generated huge crowds and a Melbourne Cup atmosphere. In 1972, when Big Butch won the Cup, 102 bookmakers fielded on the day. I've known people who haven't missed a Grafton Cup Carnival in 30 or 40 years. There's something about the Jacaranda City, there's something about the atmosphere of the Grafton Racecourse, and there's something about the legend of the great Ramorny Handicap Grafton Cup Double. These two showcase days on the country calendar will be covered on Sky One, Sky Thoroughbred Central and Sky Sports Radio. Whatever happened to Michael Clark has been one of the most frequently asked questions among racing fans in the last decade. The former multiple premiership winning jockey and rider of some of Australia's best-loved horses of the 80s and 90s disappeared from the Melbourne racing scene around 2002 and has maintained a very low profile ever since. The emergence of his talented son, brilliant apprentice Michael Poy, has enticed Michael back to the races in recent times and it's great to see him rekindling old friendships. Michael's partnership with champion trainer Colin Hayes brought him four consecutive Melbourne Jockeys premierships, a Melbourne Cup win on Atalak in 1986 and a memorable Japan Cup win on the champion Better Loosen Up in 1990. I'm delighted to welcome a man who was the toast of Australian racing during his years with the Lindsay Park racing machine. Michael Clark. I'm delighted to track you down at last. Oh, good morning, John, and what a pleasure for me. Um, you're one of my racing idols. Um, you, Bill Collins, those sort of men, so what a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks, Mike. 
Well, your boy, Michael Poy, as I said, is 19. He's already out- outridden his country claim and he looks to have a very bright future. You tell me he's got a tremendous work ethic. Yes, John. Um, uh, a little bit, not a little bit of a surprise because as a young boy, he loved his footy. Um, and because I wasn't riding, uh, you know, his interest in racing probably wasn't the to the fore. Mm. But um, he used to come to the stables with my dad, who was training, and um, my brother, and that sort of got him interested. Probably when he was about twelve, thirteen, and um, he's very lucky, John. He's got a job that he just loves doing, and mm. um, and I'm not saying you know to make money out of it. He just loves uh, his work. Um, and he loves his riding, so that's half the battle. That he's a, he's got a job that he he actually loves going to. He's with Henry Dwyer nowadays. Yes, he, he started with Stewie Webb, mm. and and I must say Henry's been absolutely brilliant, right? But mm. Stuart um, is one of those old racing style trainers, um, very firm, and and his work ethic is what he's installed into Michael. And he's taught Michael to be a real horseman, John, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, he can take shoes off a horse. He he knows more about a horse than just being a, a jockey. He's got that horseman skills. Mm-hmm. And Michael owes Dewey, um, you know, so much for so far what's happened in his career. And, and also Robert Smurden was amazingly good to Michael. He goes by the name of Michael Poy, and that puzzles many people in racing. Now, the popular theory is that to use the name Michael Clark, he would have had to live in your shadow. Are we close oh, to the mark there or not right? No, mate. I, my shadow would be such a small shadow, right? You know, it's not like uh, a Beatman or, or, you know, those famous jockeys. Um, no, but look, um, Michael's mum, uh, uh, her, her father was Les Poy, who rode in Sydney. Mm. And her um, sister's Carmen uh, Poy back then, who's Carmen Hood, who married Mickey Hood. So, um, and Michael, uh, Janelle's grandfather's old Popper Poy, who, you know, was very well known around the Sydney racing circles as well as her dad. Mm -hmm. So I was married to Natasha Burton, and then me and Janelle have been together ever since um, Natasha. for my divorce, so mm. we just went happy to go with uh, her name, and it keeps the the racing alive for them and the hoods. And Michael's got a real big following because of um, all the hood family were in racing and the poise. So it's it's really good. You must have been asked that same question many times over, though. Oh yeah, yeah, but it, it doesn't worry us, and and like. Um, my family are very close with Michael as well, so it's it's just really good. No, you know, no complaints at all, John. Now you were apprenticed to your late dad, Arthur Clark, who'd been a jockey. I can remember seeing your dad ride when he was apprenticed to Fred Hood here at Rose Hill in Sydney. Yeah, I can remember as a young boy going to I think it was Prospect Street and Hope Street, and yeah. That's when uh, Jack Denham was training and Doc Chapman, all those sort of trainers back in the, those days. Oh, that's right, Ray Guy was there. So I re- remember going up as a young boy, being around the stables with the Hoods. And um, yes, my brother was apprenticed to old Freddie Hood. Yep. My dad was apprenticed to old Freddie Hood, uh, as well as his son, Freddie's son, Mickey. Mm. So 
mum and dad remain great friends with the Hoods and so have uh, me and Janelle's related to them. So um, they all show such a keen interest in um, young Michael, like Stephen Hood who trained and rode amateur and Michael who um, rode as a jockey, Michael Hood. Mm-hmm. They get a great um, kick out of, you know, every day get up and follow what if he's got rides or where he's riding and, and it gives everyone a great interest your dad was based at the wonderful training centre at Epsom, which is now long gone, and you made your debut at Werribee, Michael, in the late 1970s on a horse called Flying Windsman, trained by your dad, a most inauspicious debut. You were never sighted. No, that's correct. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing, John, um, Similar to the Hood family where they had the stables in the backyard, I grew up as a kid with the stables in our backyard, right? So we had probably 22 boxes. So before school, I'd work with the horses and my brothers were jockeys and um, after school, I'd be there and, you know, maybe sneak the odd day off uh, during the week to go to a race meeting if we had a runner. But very lucky, um, my dad, who I just recently lost, was actually very hard the last few months losing dad, but mm-hmm. had some wonderful memories. He was uh, firm, but a fair taskmaster, uh, and he, he expected you to work harder, but he taught me a lot about racing and, um, in general, you know, about life. Like, you, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah. Michael, many people were sad to see Epsom go to the developers. It was... The, the home of champion horses and champion horsemen for so long. Well, John, just, you know, unfortunately they're talking about Caulfield going and then maybe eventually uh, Flemington. But, you know, I sort of miss those days where we, the stables were in streets, so you'd see the horses walking around the streets and and the same at Rose Hill, I can remember that. Mm. So now everything being on course, it just seems a little bit maybe... Oh, probably safer in ways, mm. but you don't get that atmosphere where we at Epsom there was probably about thirty to forty trainers that had houses with stables in their backyard. Mm. So probably because of property prices and and maybe safety being on course is is the way they've gone. Mm. There is no more pleasant sound than the clippity clop of steel horseshoes on a bitumen road. Well. I actually showed young Michael not long ago. We lived um, right opposite the gates at um, Epsom, right? Mm. So, and there was next to us was George Hamlin. Johnny Hawks eventually took those stables years to come with the Inghams. Mm. Um, there was uh, Jim Maloney, Johnny Marr, Ian Saunders. And on a Sunday, we would ride one horse and lead one from our street right up to the, the beach, which we had to across the Pan Highway, and if you've seen the traffic today, you'd be amazed that it could be done. Yeah. You know, but that's not just our stable. All the stables did that. They'd ride up on a Sunday, leading a horse either side, and, and there'd be a little boat there, and we'd all swim the horses and ride them back. Mm. But, you know, they, you know, probably when you look back in hindsight, those days it was probably a little bit more dangerous than we realised at the time. Yeah, exactly, but you were young and daring. Oh, well, that, that was just the work ethic and, and the way the trainers were back then. Mm. It was your 22nd ride before that elusive first winner came up and you had to go a long way to get it, to Rang. The horse's name was Seaboss, and yeah. I bet you remember it as though it were yesterday. 
Yeah, I was only 15. Mm-hmm. And I can remember I, um, mum and dad dropped me, or mum dropped me at St Kilda's Sea Bars where the jockeys used to sweat. Mm-hmm. And I got in the car with a jumping jockey, Bill Londrigan, mm-hmm. and we picked up Jack Styring on the way, who was a famous race caller and still going, what yeah. a gentleman. Turned 90 and, recently, Michael. Yeah, yeah, such a well-liked and great racing personality. And mm-hmm. Jack called the race. And I've still got, John, I've got to find it, but after the race being my first winner, Jack gave me a little cassette. Did he? And, um, you know, he's saying he's burying the molars to the breeze. and You know, he was just a character. <laughs> he was. He was. So, a- yeah, I've got great memories of my first day. I, I didn't hit the ground running as a superstar jockey. Um, yeah. You know, I had to work at my craft. And, um, yes, it took a while to sort of get things together. A very important early win for you was on a horse called Quabo. It was the William Reed Stakes. It was then a Group 2, Michael, which takes a little bit of gloss off it. But I'll bet you've never forgotten Quabo. No. Um, I was lucky, John. Um, at Epson, I'd start riding work for my dad, right? And then uh, I hooked up with, um, you know, Bruce Hill in Queensland, his dad, old Frank, and his yeah. mum, Shirley, were battlers right from New- they just moved from New Zealand, and like I'm a young kid, so I'd go and ride work for him. And uh, Eddie Lang was at the same time. I'd go and ride work for him, and the smaller trainers back then, but they give the kids a go, right? So I can remember with Frank Hill going to like places like uh, Hanging Rock, and we had this horse's secret show that I'd won a Hanging Rock Cup on a Terrelgan Cup. And don't worry, I'd put some ordinary rides in, right? But they'd forgive you. <laughs> they were those sort of people. And then I, yeah. Eddie Lang, like you can imagine 18, mm. group uh, group two or the Manicato Stakes. And yeah. I can remember Tommy Smith bought Ideal Planet down. And he was a big chestnut, huge rap on him. Mm. And I wasn't expecting the ride, but Eddie said, look, you've won on the horse, I'll leave you on in this race. Mm. So, you know, they were people that were, and today I'm still good friends with um, the Langs and unfortunately the Hill, Mr. Mrs. Hill passed away, but Bruce, they're genuine people and, um, you know, just lucky to be a part of that. And, and they, they gave me a really good grounding that, you know, uh, it's hard to find people like that, John. Your very first ride for Colin Hayes, was a winner. The date, Michael, was the 31st of July, 1982, so the yep. season was all but over. You were 18 or 19. The horse was Touch a Rainbow at Mooney Valley, and you got on him that day by a bizarre twist of fate. Yeah, quite amazing how things can happen, but one thing I was always taught, John, was to be ready you know, fit, ready to go, right? Because things can unfortunately happen. Um, Stephen Sharman was supposed to ride Touch a Rainbow and he was a really, really gun apprentice at the time. Um, he has a fall the race before that I was in and he broke his collarbone, couldn't ride. So I was virtually the only apprentice left in that could ride. I think the horse might had 51, right? Mm. So I'd never met Colin Hayes, never had a ride for him. Um, I knew Brent Thompson, but not real well. Um, so I wasn't connected with any of those big stables, right? So I get the call up, um, you know, Stephen's out, I get on the horse, and I can never forget this. I, I was a bit nervous because I've gone out to the mounting yard, and Colin Hayes had two runners in the race, and Brent was riding the 
short price favourite. And as I walked in the mounting, I went up to Mr. Hayes and I said, oh, Mr. Hayes, how are you? hello, you know, and he said, oh, son, what's your name? He, he had no idea who I was, right? No, no. So I meet him, I meet Robert Sengster and his wife, and, and Brent Thompson back then was like my idol jockey. Mm. You know, everyone wanted to ride like Brent or be like him. So for me to have a ride, and I'm riding the 66 to 1 shot or the outsider of the field, he's got the favourite. And Colin Hay said to me, he said, oh, look, Michael, he said, drop him out. He said, this horse works a lot better than what his form suggests. He said, if you get him travelling well, he said, he could run hard. He said, if you get down to school, he said, you see Brent in front of you, tack on to him. Mm. So the story unfolds. Uh, Touch of Rainbow gets up and wins, beats Brent, and... Um, it sort of gave, um, it got me the recognition to ride for someone like him. Mm. And then the following, I think it was the following Wednesday, Stephen was to ride three or four horses for Mr. Hayes and I took over because he was out and I rode another couple of winners and, and that led to me getting the opportunities to ride such great horses and to work for such wonderful people. Mm. Well, fate stepped in again, Michael, not long after when Colin Hayes' number two jockey, Jimmy Courtney, suffered a broken leg. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, Mr Hayes, what happened, I rode those few winners and he said, right, he said, you know, why Stephen's out? You can come and, you know, mainly ride for the claiming horses. Mm. And then Jimmy Courtney broke his leg in Adelaide and Mr Hayes asked my dad, who was apprenticed to, mm. um, can Michael come over? It would be great experience. You can ride... Um, as the number one jockey in Adelaide while Jimmy's out. So I went over there and, and that was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, Colin, they were just, even though it was so famous and, you know, respected people, they were really genuine. And um, I can remember back then, John, I was expecting to be in the boys' quarters and they actually put me in the main house downstairs. It's like two separate houses. Yeah. And I spent time with David Hayes and what a character and just a great bloke. And that started my association where, you know, I was working at, at Lindsay Park, quite a bit closer to the Hayes, getting to know them, and, and that led to me coming back to Vic. Now, Mike, you did the last 18 months of your apprenticeship at uh, Lindsay Park with Colin Hayes, and there is a story that isn't well documented, but a story that exemplifies the generosity of Colin Hayes, and I'm sure you won't mind my raising the subject. When an apprentice finished his or her time, and I assume it's still the same or very similar, the master of that apprentice received 33 and one-third percent of the money being held in the apprentice's trust fund. That was the normal procedure. Colin Hayes was entitled to part of that money, but he refused to accept it. Oh, John, that, this is what I respect so much of the Hayes, right? Um, they're really wonderful racing people, but really good people underneath. Um, Colin Hayes, I'm not saying, um, you know, like he was marvellous to me, giving me rides and all that, but the, the trainers were entitled to that percentage. Mm. So when I was turned 21, I had my 21st in my brother's house and it was near Sandown Racecourse. Mm. And I'd ask the boss, I said, oh, boss, I said, you know, would you? I know you're busy, but you know, would you like to come? He said, "Oh, he said after races, I'll call in and just say hello, have a cup of tea." He said, "I've got an early flight back." So 
he calls in and, and gave me a card and a, a, he actually gave me a gift and he said there's a, a special gift in the card. And it was a, a release form from the VRC back then that the entitlement he was to my apprentice bank earnings, yeah. you know, over that last 18 months, he actually gave back to me. He said, uh, I'll never forget his card. I've still got it somewhere here. He said, it's been a pleasure to have you. He said, you work ethic and, and you know, he said, uh, you've earned the money and I'm happy to, to give it back to you, which he did. Yeah. Well, that just speaks volumes, doesn't it? Oh, that's what I'm saying, John. Like, um, you know, I can never knock the hoses because they've been so wonderful to me. Uh, also, my brother, Gary. Like, I remember um, I was having after-track work with Colin Hayes when he was in Melbourne. You'd spend some time with him, right? And we'd talk about the horses. Then after the horses, we might talk about um, well, Gary Fancy had come in and out and David might be there. And we'd talk about family matters, his family, mine, and... He said to me one day, he said, you know, what's your brother's doing? I said, oh, one's gone to Malaysia, Singapore to ride, and my other brother's struggling a little bit, Gary. I said, um, he said, oh, yeah, he said, he rode many winners. I explained to him that Gary had won a Metro, I think, on Boldness in Sydney or a Chairman's, one of those races, and mm. won a South Australian derby years ago, and I said he ran fourth in the Melbourne Cup. And he said to me, he said, oh, where's he riding today? It was a Saturday morning. Mm. I said, we're going, which we had runners at Flemington. I said, he's riding at Maui. I said, he's really struggling. He might have had one or two rides. Mm. So after the Flemington meeting, that after we get in the colours, he said to me, he said, oh, look, tell your brother to come in for track work on Monday. And I'm not promising anything, but, um, you know, we'll just see how things go. So Gary came in, um, met Mr. Hayes and sort of felt a little bit out of place. But after a few weeks, he, you know, said to me, he said, oh, look, you know, we'll give Gary a bit of a go and see how things work out. And I think that year, Johnny won or won a new market on Grandiose. He eventually won like Oakley Plate, Guineas, and he, he won a Victoria Derby for him on King's High. Mm. So that's what sort of man who wasn't, they never just thought about themselves there. If you work for them and, and everything was all right, they, they gave you know, the people that probably less the lights or struggling ago. And that's what sort of man he was. And so began a wonderful journey for young Michael Clark as number three jockey for the Lindsay Park racing machine behind Brent Thompson and Mick Mallion. And we're going to pause now for a break on the podcast. When we come back, we'll find just where uh, that journey led Michael Clark. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of Inglis when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10am sharp, Easter Round 2 will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deepfield, Dundeal, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think. 
with first season sires like American Pharaoh and capitalists represented. Inglis have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalogue of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter Round 2 concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? Inglis have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter Round 2 and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. Well, Michael, you went to dizzy heights uh, during those wonderful years with Lindsay Park, and uh, that era brought you the privilege to ride one of the great gallopers of his time. Better Loosen Up was originally trained by Les Theodore, who won a two-year-old race with him at Bendigo. Bart Cummings took over for the horse's three-year-old year. He won four city races for Bart. He ran second in the Canterbury Guineas too, seventh in the Rose Hill Guineas. Then he had a good spell. He turned up at Lindsay Park. And is it true, Michael, that Colin Hayes wasn't overly impressed at first. He thought he might have been a Bart reject. Well, probably at first, John, because he was a nondescript-looking horse, like, you know, not over big, pretty light gelding. Um, there was nothing flash about him to look at, right? But um, just I, I remember I looked through his form and actually the, the late but the great Johnny Marshall rode him in a lot of those races when Bart Cummings had him. Mm. So... Um, but he wasn't a horse that looked anything flash, but when you got on his back, he'd arch his neck and, he, you know, he felt like a, a, a bit of a Ferrari, but maybe looked like a mini minor. <laughs> yeah, good. Exactly right. Well, yeah. first up, your brother Gary ran second on him at Caulfield and then you took over. You won three straight Group 1s, the Honda at Flemington, and then you went to Perth and you landed the big double, the Winfield and the Railway Stakes. Now, what did you think of him at that time, Michael? Well, do you know that when he ran second, my brother rode him, we had a, oh, a really good mare that I won that race on from New Zealand. And um, I remember pulling up and, and, you know, it was pretty important, you know, uh, that day for us, you know, he, mm. and my brother rode better loose it up. And he said to me, he said, oh, what a horse this is. He said, I reckon, you know, I was a bit unlucky, got blocked. He said, another couple of strides, I would have beat you. And the mare I rode, I just, her name evades me at the moment, but she was like, ran second in group ones and was a really good mare. So the next start, I rode him in the, what was it, the, like, there used to be the George Adams at mile race at Flemington. Mm. And he, he only had 52 kilos and he won, but, didn't didn't give me the feel like uh, that he was going to be the horse he turns out to be, but what he did, John, he went from that uh, mile race or the Emirates they call it now to Perth, and I won the Winfield on him the eighteen hundred, and he came back to the mile the railway, and his run in the railway was just had to be seen to believe. Like mm -hmm. back second last, I got pushed off, and he got interfered with, and got up and won, and I said to the boss, I said, like, he shouldn't have, he wasn't entitled to win today. I said, he's a super horse. But what he did, he kept improving as he went along, and that was unusual for a gelding of his age. Yeah. 
And, you know, that that went on to when he won the Cox Plate, he goes to Japan and, and as I say, to get to the heights he did, he just kept getting better. And I remember when he came back from Japan, I rode him in the Australian Cup and that race, he used to win by short margins, right? Yeah, he was an octagonal, wasn't he? Yeah, you'd think, oh, you know, maybe one day he's going to get beat. But when he came back from Japan, when he won the Australian Cup, he was up running third, second sort of thing, and bow rogue lead. And, and I was got to about the 500, the 400, and I thought, I'm going to get to the front too early, right? So I sort of grabbed hold of him again. He was just – and I'll never forget, Johnny, when I let him go, and I know bow rogue was a champion of his own right, right? Um, he sprinted like I've never ridden a horse before. It was yeah. like at the 300-metre mark after the 2,000 or the seven, you know, the race, he sprinted like a horse, like special. You know, you just jumped on a Oakley Plate or a Newmarket winner. So that that day was – I still had never ridden a horse that sprinted like that. After Perth, he had a freshen up. He came back to win the Blamey Stakes, Group 2, he ran second to Vaux Rogue in the Australian Cup, and old Vaux was flying at the time. Then he came to Sydney. He won a Group 1, the Sedgen Ho, which is now the Ranvet. He was unplaced in the BMW, and then he ran second to Citizen in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, and then for a well-earned spell. Before he came back, Michael, from that spell, Colin Hayes announced his retirement, and David inherited, and it was a mammoth job, the Lindsay Park training operation. Yes, that's correct, John. Um, yeah, what a mammoth job to take over, but he was very well um, uh, trained by his father. You know, he had a lot of uh, his dad's training techniques and and uh, his dad's mannerisms, and uh, he did an absolute wonderful job, David. The day... He won the McKinnon Stakes on Derby Day of 1990. This was only a few months after Colin Hayes' retirement and there were cynics around who were wondering if David would ever follow in his dad's footsteps. I know it worried David uh, to some degree for a short time, but he put the doubters on their bums on Derby Day 1990 when he trained six winners, all group races, you rode four of them and Peter Hutchinson the other two. Better loosen up was one of them. Yes, that was a great day to remember, John. Um, yeah, he trained six winners um, on the program. So what a wonderful training feat. And, um, yeah, it, it took any of the doubters away that, um, that the Hayes Empire was going to continue. Now, up to this point in time, Michael, you had won five Group 1s on Better Loosen Up, but obviously... There was more to come. And 22 days after the McKinnon, you and the Better Loosen Up entourage were at Fuchu in Tokyo for the Japan Cup. What an eye-opener. You couldn't believe the crowd, you couldn't believe the noise, and you couldn't believe how early they got you to the barrier. Yes, that's correct, John. Um, I remember that day... I think I picked up a ride in the first race of the day, right, which was very early their time. It might have been 10.30 or 10.40, the first race. So when And I wanted to get a feel of the track and have a look. So when I got to the races, it, it wasn't a big crowd at all. And the jockey's room's like in a bunker. It's under a big, um, under the big grandstand. And 
when you're in the jockey's room, you don't realise you know, the, the races are on that are being run or in other areas of Japan, but you don't see the crowd. So from race one, I think the Japan Cup was race 11, I've come to go out to the mounting yard out the back of the track and I was just blown away. There was 120 or 130,000 people there. So I've gone from not realising, you know, how big this crowd is in the atmosphere. Um, so you got on the horses out the back of the track. And I remember Kevin Moses rode style century, and I think he was number one. Mm. So as they went out, I might have been number nine or ten. As the Japanese seen the first horse come onto the track, the eruption, the noise being under this tunnel was amazing. So when I came out and seen the people, um, I got around to the barriers and they, they what they do, they hold you behind the barriers for a long time because of the bedding and the turnover and the crowd. So I said to them, I saying to Kevin Moses, said, can you believe this? He said, um, the atmosphere, he said, he, I remember he said to me, he said, I felt like Michael Jackson coming out on stage. He said, uh, <laughs> he said, I've never seen nothing like it. No. So I'm around these, and they put us in this big shed, like open air shed. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'm just that nervous. I need to have a wee or get, you know, just relieve myself. <laughs> so I've, I've gone off the horse, got the reins around my arm, trying to have a pee, and I honestly couldn't, right? Because I was, and I thought, oh, this didn't work. So I get back on him, but it was just the atmosphere. It was like probably, oh, very similar to our Melbourne Cup, but just amazing the crowd they got there. Yeah. Well, Brian Martin was there to call the race, and he still dines out on the story about you having a pee behind a tree. Oh, yeah. It was all caught on camera, and they were wondering what I was doing. But <laughs> the stewards did ask me after it. But, um, yeah, what an amazing atmosphere, achievement for the Hazers, for me, the horse, our strapper. Kate was over there, like and Gary Fennessy, it was just a real big team effort. And I became very good friends with uh, Gay Farrer and all the Farrers and Luke Coomey and and um, a lot of the owners of the horse. So, and I still remain friends with them today. Um, but a great team of people. And Brian Martin was there and he was part of the team. And, you know, it was, it was a ex- wonderful experience and, and something that I'll never forget. And no Australian horse since has been able to win the Japan Cup. Well, he had a good blow after the Japan trip. He resumed in February of 91. He won very well in the uh, Blamey Stakes. He won the Australian Cup. That's the race you tell me was one of his best ever performances. And uh, as you say, like Octagonal, he didn't win by fancy margins, but he did that day. It was 5.5 lengths, Mike. Oh, Johnny, he, um, it, it seems a bit silly to say this, but it, being a gelding, right, and, and getting to that age, I think he might have been five to six then, and he seemed to get better. Like, when he came back from Japan, that day he won the Australian Cup. Oh, you know, uh, I remember I was up, he used to get, like, jump out a bit slow and take a bit of time to get into his rhythm, but that day he jumped and wanted to travel. So... During the race, he was on the bit wanting to go, and that was a little bit unusual. And I, I remember looking up, and Vaurey uh, was in front, and he, you know he's a great front-running horse or a champion, Vaurey. And he had that that two or three weeks on me, but I knew I could pick him up pretty quick if I wanted to. So I'm a bit mindful. I'm saying, well, I don't want to get to the front too early. And I remember I got to about the 300, and I sort of just joined Vaurey, and I thought, well, I've got to go now. He sprinted. It was electrifying. 
Like I'd never ridden a horse and still to today that would have sprinted like uh, Better Loosen Up did it. It was like jumping on a horse like Special or Scarlet Bits over the last 300. Yeah. You know, that was, that was the turn of foot that day he had. And I probably think that, you know, there wouldn't have been many horses or a horse in the world that day that could have beat him. And I think that was his best uh, performance by the way he gave me the feel. Well, his soundness issues uh, started to appear after that. He wasn't seen again for almost 11 months. And it was sad to think that he never won again in 12 starts. He ran three placings. Your brother rode him, actually, in his final start in a race. That was at Morfordville on the 1st of February, 1993. He ran second, uh, but better loosen up his amazing career came to an end after that. He died in 2016, Michael, at the famous Living Legends Farm near Tullamarine Airport. His record stood. He wasn't over-raced, 45 starts, 17 wins, 12 placings, 4.8 million in 1993. Get your head around that. What would that be today? You won yeah. 12 races on him and eight of them were group ones. And I'll bet there are quiet moments to this day when you think about better loosen up. Oh, don't worry, John. We used to go and visit him. We'd take him a few carrots. And mm. to their credit, Andrew Clark runs at Living Legends. And any of your listeners, if they're in Melbourne, it's a must-do thing. It's very close to the airport. Mm. But it's a wonderful initiative. And better listen up to finish his, his life there, being so well looked after. It's quite amazing. We used to go and visit him often. And, and um, yes, yes, what a great way for him to end his last few years and, and to be so well looked after. And so ends part one of our special podcast with former champion jockey Michael Clark. In part two, Michael will talk about his only Melbourne Cup win on At Talak, a stayer who could dash like a top-grade sprinter. He talks of the hugely talented but unsound Almarad, one of his two Cox Plate winners. He reflects on the strength of the Victorian riding ranks in his day and the last six years of his career riding outside of Australia. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.